We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Welcome to Reclamation Radio. I'm Kelly Brogan, and today I want to talk about some of the stages of health reclamation. In Vital Life Project, my membership community, I've organized the reclamation paths into different sovereignty domains. So there's family, there's femininity, food, medicine, mental health, relationships, and spirituality. And these different sovereign paths have the through line of resolving victim consciousness and stepping into non-oppositional, non-referential, basically ending the war, ending the controversy, 
personal empowerment. So I thought to share a bit from a talk that I recently gave that was well-received on self-ownership in the health and medical realm and what these days I think it consists of. So I have always loved this quote from Maya Angelou, which is when essentially paraphrased, when you know better, you do better. And I have watched how information and exposure to information can change a person's life. I've also watched how sometimes information has largely no effect at all. Like I've watched people read, you know, my books cover to cover and go on to participate in the conventional medical system. So there's more to the story, but I thought to introduce you to like a a fictional patient so that we can work with some of the nature of the information and then see what might be some of the underlying reasons that somebody might stay stuck, right? Okay. So let's say you have this patient, Mary, right? And she has a history of childhood sexual abuse that she has never dealt with, never looked at, never wanted to talk about. She goes on to have a medical birth. She has a arguably objectively traumatic birth experience, including an induction, physiotomy, and some complications neonatally. So she finally gets home with her baby and she develops symptoms of what on a screening is determined to be panic and depression. So she has started on Zoloft and Ativan. Additionally, shortly thereafter, she started on the mini pill, which is a form of birth control. And she's also started on an antibiotic and She presents to my office feeling suicidal for the first time in her life and really at the end of her rope, wanting to know what else is possible. So this is a pretty typical patient for me in my practice. And I very much understand the field of belief that would lead somebody like Mary to participate in the pharmaceutical management of her symptoms because I was the prescriber for many years and very much a believer in things like, you know, it's our chemistry, right? Kind of born this way and things just kick it off. And it's important to respond and respond swiftly with an intervention that is going to keep the patient safe, right? So there are beliefs like, you know, chemicals help us to feel better and correct imbalances and correct things that are wrong. There are beliefs that doctors know better, you know, what's actually going on than the patient herself. And that might sound trite, but it's a fundamental core belief of that system is that somebody in authority outside of yourself knows better than you do. And then there's also this idea that the body is just a random thing in a random universe. So it's subjected to random forces, bad luck, bad genes, bad timing. And we're just sort of like contending with that. So early on in my career, I came across, well, I I should say my renegade career. I came across this quote from the British Medical Journal that says, unfortunately, in the balance between benefits and risks, it is an uncomfortable truth that most drugs do not work in most patients. So what is it that Mary might not have known, right? So if we're going off the rubric, when you know better, you do better. What is it that she might not have known? That would have led her to, you know, bring her beautiful self over to CVS and fill those prescriptions. 
Well, <laughs> one of the things is that there is a significant and permissible manipulation of data by the industry and its relationship to published literature. So, you know, one of my favorite studies is from the New England Journal of Medicine from 2008. And essentially what they show in a bar graph is that most of the inconvenient results, right? So the results that are, that negatively reflect on the efficacy of these medications are tucked into a file drawer. And some of them are actually published as positive. So they're skewed or the data itself is represented in such a way so as to appear beneficial or to you know, reflect positively on the, the drug's efficacy. So this is one of many ways that we are led to believe through especially direct-to-consumer advertising, where one of three countries that allows for that, allows for industry to speak directly to consumers, patients about their biology. It's one of the ways that we are led to believe that these medications actually work. When the reality is that in now seven decades of study and Joanna Moncrief just came out with a very important review summarizing a lot of this data, you know, looking at postmortem analysis, looking at cerebrospinal fluid, looking at blood analysis, looking at genetic markers, there is no valid evidence for the chemical imbalance theory of really any so-called mental illness, but let's just focus on you know, depression or what it is that we're looking at in this character sketch right now, there's no evidence for it, right? So if there is no evidence for it, then what is it that these medications are actually doing? If they're not correcting a chemical imbalance, what are they doing? So in an older paper, she says, our analysis indicates that there are no specific antidepressant drugs, that most of the short-term effects of antidepressants are shared by many other drugs. And that long-term drug treatment with antidepressants or any other drugs has not been shown to lead to long-term elevation of mood. We suggest that the term antidepressant should be abandoned, right? Because even in the language, and I talk about this as it's warfare language, right? So antibiotics, anti-emetics, antihypertensives, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, these are all warfare, <laughs> victim consciousness labels. And she is suggesting, well, they might have an effect, but it's not a disease-based effect. It's not an effect that is actually resolving something that is wrong with the patient. It's an effect the way you might imagine, you know, alcohol has an effect. You wouldn't imagine that the experience of shifts associated with alcohol are resolving an alcohol imbalance or deficiency, right? So how about we start to frame it that way? So this patient, Mary, might also not have known that illness can be manufactured by these medications, right? So one of the more important studies I've come across uh, was out of Yale and essentially documented that for every 23 folks who are treated with antidepressants, one is then labeled subsequently with so-called bipolar disorder. So in my training, I was taught to tell patients that their underlying illness, this bipolar illness was just unmasked by the medication. It's not that the medication actually induced this instability or this you know, shift, it was just unmasked, right? So we know by virtue of the fact that most psychiatric patients are taking three medications or more that the domino effect of medications, so medications treating the side effects of other medications is a very real and common phenomenon. 
but do we know that these are actually causal? Right. And that's a lot of what the book that changed the course of my career, Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, that was his premise, right? His hypothesis was that these medications are actually inducing and perpetuating that which they purport to resolve. So the medications are actually responsible for the epidemic of mental health disability that we are attributing to a so-called illness. So that this is actually an iatrogenic or a doctor-driven field of harm. And this is one of the examples of that. I would say, though, what really led me to put down my prescription pad and something that somebody like Mary never would have probably come across through her prescribing physician or really anybody else in the field that she came into contact with, because I was never, ever in my extensive, you know, Ivy League training, I was never informed about the adverse effects that often come under the umbrella of akathisia, but are relatively poorly understood other than that they have been observed and documented, which include impulsive violence, homicide, and suicide. So one of the more important papers that, again, led me to put down my prescription pad in 2010 for good and only dedicate myself to helping women come off of medications, never ever did I start somebody on a medication again, was by Lucier and Crotty, this paper that looked at these otherwise normative individuals, right? Who you couldn't say were, had any pre-existing homicidality or suicidality who were dealing with, you know, stressors in their lives and were prescribed antidepressant medications and then went on to, you know, commit fairly heinous acts of violence, including, you know, jumping in front of a train, you know, murdering family members, murdering a therapist, stabbing former partner. I had the opportunity to interact with somebody who had, when I was presenting in London in 2016, I met David Carmichael, somebody who had a lived experience of this nightmare who started on an antidepressant for run-of-the-mill life stress and anxiety and ended up murdering his own son and is now an activist in this realm trying to help people to know, right? Because if you're not aware, and there is no risk stratification around this, right? So there's no way that the theory of the paper was that these individuals have certain liver enzyme anomalies that lead them to an intoxication state when they start these medications or when there is a, a change in the medications dosing or the medication is discontinued and they essentially become intoxicated although they don't they look calm and normal from the outside in right and this state leads them to impulsive acts that they wouldn't otherwise have engaged were they not under the influence of this medication that is being metabolized in a certain way by their liver enzymes. So nobody is checking these typically, and it's not gold standard to look for this before prescribing. So, you know, talk about a Russian roulette. When I dedicated my practice to helping women come off these medications, I learned firsthand what it looks like to withdraw from these medications. And in the literature at the time, it was referred to as a discontinuation syndrome. And I was never taught in my training how to taper people off of medications in a way that would afford them the opportunity to see how they feel without them. 
because the way that I was encouraged to taper was over the course of a month of about, you know, 25% of the dose decreases every week. And the withdrawal phenomenon was characterized as a relapse in their symptoms. So almost like, and I told you so kind of set up, right? So like, here you are, look, you have symptoms. Don't you see, you should stay on your medication. Like, don't be a silly girl thinking you can stop taking this medication. You have to take it for life because your chemical imbalance warrants it, or at least for a long, good long time. And we'll talk about it later. Right? So the bind that many patients would find themselves in is that the medication was either ineffective or inducing pathology, so-called pathology. You know, these medications have been documented to induce something called tardive dysphoria, which is essentially chronic depression, right? So it's either ineffective or you're worse. And then when you try to come off it, it's very difficult, right? Or you can't, or you're encouraged not to. So the withdrawal phenomenon around the physiologic, let alone psycho-emotional withdrawal phenomenon around these medications is what gave birth to my protocol, Vital Mind Reset, because I saw so much uh, physiologic instability that I was essentially running almost like an outpatient rehab at the time. And it coincided with when I resolved my Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I thought, okay, well, if these simple lifestyle changes, and of course the shift in mindset around what is possible could confer this level of benefit to my life, maybe there's some role for this in my patients' lives. And so shortly thereafter, I began to require that this lifestyle protocol be under their belts before we would decrease the dose, even, you know, a hundredth of a milligram, because the signal of safety, as I call it, that is sent to the nervous system creates the conditions for the taper to be more successful. So, you know, if you knew when you were walking your prescription to CVS for the first time, you know, that the efficacy has been overplayed, you know, that in comparison to active placebo or drugs that have similar effects, so-called side effects, they're all effects, that these medications are not more effective. And the only reason we think they are, are because the negative studies have been hidden in the file drawer. If you knew that they can induce you know, irreversible harm. And if you knew how difficult they would be to come off of that, you know, to, to discontinue, would you wonder if there's another way, right? Like, would you wonder if there's another real way, not just sort of like the bastard stepchild alternative medicine option, right? Like what is the, what is the other, the other way, the better way, the truer path? What is this really all about? And how can I feel fundamentally comfortable in my own skin again. So when you know better, right? So let's say you have all of this information. Why don't you do better, right? Are there other factors that come into play beyond just information? So I am obviously having written a couple of books about it and I don't know, hundreds of blogs and having been on, you know, hundreds of, you know, podcasts and interviews. I am a believer that exposure to information is essential because it can ignite that remembrance, right? But what happens when the exposure to the information isn't enough? Like, why might we stay stuck? And I have explored three reasons that I, I see most often that create that disconnect from knowing better and doing better. So the first one is that you're sick for a reason, you're struggling for a reason, 
and that it's actually working for you. So your needs are actually being met by your relationship to a life lived with the symptoms that you're struggling with. So in internal family systems and parts work, there is this idea that I find very helpful because even before I knew about parts work, I saw this over and over again, that there is a part of a person who is struggling with their health that very, very deeply believes that those symptoms are necessary, right? So if there is a part that says it must be this way, how can you get to know what that part has to say? How can you get to know the beliefs held by that part? And how can you begin to understand what it is that you're getting out of your struggle, right? So sometimes the needs that are being met are for an experience of feeling taken care of, feeling attended to, feeling contained, right? When you don't know how to ask directly for these needs to be met and you don't have dynamics in your life that offer the meeting of these needs for caretaking, then you might subconsciously create conditions for that to be, you know, conferred to your experience, right? What if you have a lot of trouble saying no and setting boundaries because you have coupled your no with danger, retribution, and punishment. Well, if you have recurrent migraines, that's a very easy way for you to say, no, I can't, I'm sick, right? Instead of that doesn't work for me or I'm not available. <laughs> so the ways that our illness, whether it's you know panic attacks or whether it's joint pain, whatever it might be that is ongoing that we have a relationship to, the ways that those symptoms are actually meeting needs and keeping us safe according to some part of us that has learned that we are safer in this smaller life experience, in this like hobbled life experience. Until you can better understand why that is, you don't know yourself and you haven't gotten the memo, right? From you to you about you that your symptoms are attempting to bring to your awareness. The victim consciousness realm of so much of conventional medicine that is predicated on triangulation, right? So on that Cartman triangle of the villain, the victim, and the rescuer, it is a very alluring (laughs) space to fall into because of the ways that we're conditioned. It is a safe way to secure some sense of empowerment. And so much of medicine rides on this, whether it's, you know, germ theory or the cancer mutation theory or the cholesterol theory of heart disease, all of these theories are putting you in the dependent position of a helpless victim. And why might we want to be a victim? Of course, somebody wants to be a victim, except we do, except it actually feels really good and familiar and fulfilling. And a lot of the benefits of victimhood while they pale in comparison to the experience of joy and you know liberation and expansion of sovereignty they are fulfilling these needs so when you're in that triangulation you are recruiting the rescuer that is the system against the villain that is your body that is your symptoms so it's a way to maintain this split my body and my symptoms are not me they are a bad thing happening to me you know it's a way to remain incoherent it's a way to remain in this state of fragmentation so that 
the wholeness, <laughs> the full reclamation is not yet available because it's not safe for you to go there yet in your life, right? I know that I was a perfect match for the system when I was in my training, when I was prescribing, because I also projected my fears and my deep belief that I am bad and broken out onto the space of health, right? So there are bad things that just happen. You just get a tumor, you know, you get an infection, poor me. And I got to be the good, vulnerable, like valiant, you know, good girl, while all the bad things out there that could and would happen to me would be, you know, managed. I would be caretaken. I would be rescued by the system that knows better by the parentified mommy medicine, right? That could come in and make everything better. So I'm in this childlike space of seeking for that benevolent parent through the system to save me from the badness that I am. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like wild how we play out these energies and these psychodramas through very serious systems like medicine and government and education. And so when you are no longer a match for that, it's because there's a rattling in your cage that says, time to grow up now, right? And I often use the analogy that it's almost like you're you know, a 40-year-old woman who's been abused your whole life and you're still living with your parents, but you're in the basement and you've been there your whole life like a feral animal. And you know, one day you notice that you know, the light coming in through the window and you think about the fact that you could actually just kind of, you're tall enough now, you could kind of crawl out and leave, but you might stop because you might say, oh, well, but I don't know how to work and I don't know how to take care of myself and I better just stay here. Like the devil I know, right, is better. And there's gonna come a day where it's worth it. It's worth it to just crawl on out the window and see what the hell happens and <laughs> see what's waiting for you on the other side because your sovereign impulse right? That archetypal individuation journey has ignited and is ready to, to begin. And often it's played out through this emancipation from a system that requires that you remain in childlike thinking and feeling at war with your own self and your own, you know, so-called bad parts, your own wrongness, your own brokenness in collusion, you know, with this higher power. So the second reason that we often stay stuck is that it didn't start with you, right? So I have become very, very passionate about family constellation. And there's an interview that I did with Maureen Saline on family constellation. She's a practitioner. I also read and very much enjoyed It Didn't Start With You and the Netflix series, Another Self. The book is by Mark Wallen. And this idea that we are potentially handed down unresolved conflicts, traumas, and incidences of loss or betrayal, abandonment, death, you know, from our ancestors so that we can finally respond in a different way. And if that is the case, then it's really essential to begin to understand the very specific significance of your struggle, of your symptoms, in the context of your family, in the context of your ancestry. So in It Didn't Start With You, Wallen writes about this patient that he had who 
was waking up in a cold sweat with panic attacks. And on interrogation of his family line, there was a family member who apparently was electrocuted in a snow blizzard at the same age. And it was a remarkable example of how it is that these seeming synchronicities of conditions, events, and struggles in our family line might be explained as an opportunity to finally metabolize and bring completion to something that was left open, you know, by a previous generation. And I have found family constellation to be an extraordinary methodology and approach for beginning to explore and observe some of these systems-based dynamics of struggle and patterns of pain and trauma that are bigger than just your story, but are very specific to your story and to work to organize and harmonize and create belonging, but also boundaries around what is yours and what is your family systems? What is somebody else in your families? What are you carrying? And what do you have the opportunity to alchemize and transmute? So this is one of the many ways that we can begin to generate meaning. You know, I wrote my last book that suffering ends where meaning begins when you can become curious about what's happening and relate more intentionally with the part of you that hates what's happening and the part of you that hates the part that hates what's happening, (laughs) then you have this whole world of meaning that can unfold and the story, the poetry, the invitation to deepen your self-knowledge, self-awareness and self-discovery it becomes a reflex. It becomes how you relate to yourself. You're curious about what this means. Okay. So the last reason that we get stuck and stay stuck sometimes is that we don't know what's possible. So as I mentioned, when I developed my protocol vital mind reset, and at the time in my practice, I began to see what could only be characterized as medical miracles. So, you know, the resolution of chronic lupus, of chronic IBS, of Graves' disease without medical interventions, of course, Hashimoto's, that was my lived experience as well. Then things like chronic acne or asthma. And I am a psychiatrist, so I was not in the business of curing all of these disparate um, diagnoses. And I began to understand that when the conditions are set for the body to regenerate, for the body to stabilize, and for the body to resolve its adaptation, which is what we call illness or symptoms, it does so involuntarily. It does so with grace, right? That just happens. That is part of the unfoldment. And I became very passionate about really sounding the alarm on what's possible. When I got to actually around the time that my mentor died, and when I got to the point where I was you know, drowning in a well of victim consciousness around my activism. Like, why is it this way? This is so horrible. It's so unfair. We have to beat them. The injustice. And I just got to this point where I was miserable. I felt miserable about bringing children into the world. Then my mentor died. And I said, you know what? I have to reach for what feels good. And so I started to focus on celebrating what I know is possible because I was seeing it with my own eyes. And that's when I started publishing all of these cases. And ultimately we had a randomized clinical trial of vital mind reset to prove, if you will, that these 
remissions, these resolutions that the impossible is possible. And I became very passionate about how essential it is that you just at least know, right? You just at least know what's possible. I mean, I often talk about how I wish that I had known that home birth was a thing with your first child. I just never knew anybody who had done that and never heard of it. And because I didn't know it was possible, you know, I had a birthing center birth, which was fine. (laughs) You know, it was great in many ways. However, it was not what could have been had I known what was possible. And it also helps you to organize yourself internally around your yes and your no, because you might learn what's possible and you might feel like it's not for you. Good to know, you know, I'm still going to go down, down this path. So the essential role that this kind of a protocol can also play or some kind of a ritual experience that affords the reclamation of choice right? Because you can reclaim your power of choice in so many different ways. You just commit to a change in your life, but it has to be a real pattern disruptor, right? So that you can actually feel the difference and be affirmed in the power that you had to generate that change, that shift in the outcome. And so I've come to find that, you know, my protocol, vitamin reset, it's really, it's a ritual initiation. So how can you create the conditions for you to initiate to your own power so that you can begin the journey of making meaning out of your struggle. And I am very biased around a particular order of operations that I think it starts with sending the body and nervous system specifically a signal of safety through lifestyle change, right? What you're eating, meditation, what time you're going to sleep, how you're detoxing, and all the while you're programming and conditioning yourself around, you're like defragging your system so that the belief that you can't is fundamentally undermined by what you are feeling and living, which is that you can actually. And once that is underway, then the the space for examining all of the other ways that you are stuck in victim consciousness in these dynamics where you are attempting to, as I say, buy eggs from the hardware store, where you are attempting to secure love, approval, and connection from the impossible place where it was never on offer. So that resonant field of your victimhood, of your disempowerment, when you take stock of it, when you take inventory and you see all of the relationships with systems, with, you know, it could be with your kid's school, it could be with your partner, it could be with your family of origin and some dynamic in there. There's so many ways that we continue to feel resentment and disappointment and that, you know, erotic caress of the enemy, that obsession with how unfair it is, how frustrating it is. We get into complaint culture and we, and commiseration connection, and we begin to just live a whole life based on our unfulfillment and associated bitterness. And there's a moment where you are ready to meet that need directly and to source it from a place where what you want is actually available. But first you have to acknowledge that the need is there which requires that you recognize that there is a part of you that wants an experience and has wanted it for so many decades and is used to attempting to get it from the impossible place, AKA your parents, your caretaker, and has carried that forward in life. And that it's time to exercise your power of choice and begin to 
recognize where it is that you can source the meeting of your needs directly, how you can create containers for yourself to feel safe and how you can begin to heal, you know, those internal mother and father wounds to restore that inner polarity of masculine and feminine within you in service of love in service of your inner child in service of your connection to whatever it is that you believe is deeper, greater, and more fundamentally connected than your human consciousness, right? So the ways that you can move through that reclamation field of relational sovereignty, then of course, lead you to the spiritual dimensions of understanding how it is that you can be free. What does freedom mean? What does it look like? You know, I know for me, I was surprised to learn that I don't actually want to be totally free. I enjoy, you know, some structure. I enjoy constraint. I enjoy the riverbanks for the water to move within me. Right. And so what freedom looks like for me may be very different than how it looks like for you. I know one of the chief tenets of freedom for me is not needing anyone else to be bad and wrong in order for me to say no, right? Another tenant has been, you know, an increasing capacity to be perceived as bad and wrong by somebody I even care about, right? To wear that villain crown and to be okay with it, to allow other people to be who the hell they are and to understand who it is that I am and to remain connected to some capacity, even through that difference. And I also have found freedom to rest on my capacity to have and hold what it is that I want. And that is something I am really working towards every single day, because first of all, knowing what you want, second of all, getting what you want and having what you want, holding and keeping what it is that you want in a lifestyle of abundant fulfillment is more complicated than we might imagine it to be. Right. And that's why so often we are attuned and habituated to struggle. And when we get the thing we want, it sort of like tastes like nothing and we move on to focus on the next problem. So I call it like a lighthouse, you know, like I'm always scanning for how I can attune to the familiar resonance of my victim in struggle, right? That protector part of me that knows that vigilance is the way to stay safe has been challenging to repurpose and reassign to a different task. So, you know, I sort of break up the emotional mastery, spiritual mastery realm into feel it, face it and free it. So these ideas of how we can orient towards feeling a feeling, really generating a reflexive habit of making space, sometimes 30, 90 seconds to feel feelings and allow sensations to simply exist. That might be also an embodiment practice like dance or, you know, screaming. However, it may simply be just sitting in stillness with your hand on the place that has the most sensation in your body and allowing that to exist for a limited container of time. And then face it is certainly a lot of the shadow work inquiry that can lead us to understand what our deeper fears are. You know, for example, what is it that I'm most afraid that somebody who is criticizing me might be right about, or to examine my unseen motives, right? Like what, what am I really doing here with you? Why am I really doing this? You know, am I trying to help enlighten people? Am I trying to, you know, spread the good word? 
Or are there other motives that are more shameful that might be helpful for me to at least acknowledge? And I have found that once you have one or two experiences of saying, yeah, I'm doing that (laughs) and really holding the shame that can well up, holding the fear of permanent, you know, exile and rejection that can be linked to some of these, you know, personal responsibility exercises. Once you have one or two experiences, it gets much easier and actually even becomes almost like a sport, right? Like for fun. I mean, at this point now, if I recognize that I am doing a shady thing, I'm like, oh, there I go again, right? Because I have a growing sense of self with a capital S that is here watching all the parts do their thing. And I don't necessarily, as an IFS, I would say like blend with any one of the parts to think that this is who I am, right? I am all of these parts and I'm also not any single one of them. So the ongoing practice of walking this sovereign path is initially extremely challenging. That's why they call it a dark night of the soul. That's what I became very practiced with witnessing the trajectory of when I worked with patients and why I know the role that suicidality can play in someone's becoming process. And the dark night of the soul, the first one is the initiation. And after that, every single one, you know, the terrain, there is a witness there. There is that presiding energy, that inner masculinity, if you will, that says, I got this. I see you. It's going to be okay. I know where we're going. (laughs) Even when you don't, it's like a stabilizing sense of okayness that's always available. So Here are some of the dots that I like to connect in this realm. And I will close with a quote from Bud Harris, who wrote Sacred Selfishness. Reclaiming ourselves means recognizing and accepting the parts of us that we shunted into our unconscious. It means realizing our duality, that we're capable of fear and courage, generosity and selfishness, vulnerability and strength, love, and the desire for power. None of these things cancels the other out. When we reclaim the ones we've banished, it does more, much more than bring balance to our personalities. It makes us more complex, more complete, and thus in more control of deeper, fuller, more satisfying lives. It offers us a full range of power in response to life. We don't live in an either or world. Our fear may give birth to courage, our vulnerability to strength, our despair to creativity, our denial to integrity, and our drivenness to love. Thanks all.